Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. Get your notebooks out because we're going back to school with law professor Randy Barnett, and we're going to talk about the, some of the most important cases in our constitutional history. Check it out. Professor Barnett, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me in this uh, in this very hospitable uh, studio you have here. It's designed to be the sort of the anti-Fox News. There's not going to be any flashing lights or shooting rockets. Or but I know from previous times is that if it rains out, you have to scrub the interview because the it'll you can hear it on the roof. Yes, my my Christmas project is to finish putting the insulation in the roof uh, because we were going to do this uh, almost a month ago. I More think. than a month ago, yeah. And it was pouring rain, and you could not have heard us speaking right now. <laughs> so a very professional operation we have going on here. But uh, uh, tell us, uh, you're a professor of law at Georgetown University, and as far as I've known as, as, as a person involved in, in, in legislation and ideas and libertarian philosophy, you've, you've always been sort of the the guy to go to for a libertarian legal interpretation of not just the Constitution, but whatever it is we're fighting about. Why don't you give people a, a little bit of background on who you are and, and what you've been up to? Sure. I, um, you know, I grew up in Calumet City, Illinois, which is south of Chicago, and decided when I was 10 years old I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, when I was in college at Northwestern, I came across libertarianism uh, because of a uh, junior professor there gave a talk at the college, this residential college I was living at, and I thought, oh, wow, this sounds very interesting. And I met with him privately several times. And by the time I was a senior, I actually taught an accredited seminar, student-organized seminar on libertarianism. Uh, and then I went to law school. I went to Harvard Law School. And there um, I was introdu got introduced to Murray Rothbard and the Libertarians in New York and actually became a member of the Center for Libertarian Studies there uh, in New York and spent a lot of time in New York, more time than I should have given my studies at Harvard Law. Yeah. And after that, uh, I graduated and became a criminal lawyer, which is what I went to law school to become and was a criminal prosecutor in Chicago, tried, you know, trying for the Cook County State's Attorney's Office, try trying felonies, murders, rapes, armed robberies, jury trials. That's what I did. And when I became a law professor, um, uh, dealing with the Constitution was the farthest thing from my mind. I, I really was wanted to work mainly up on what the proper theory of rights should be, private law. So I started out as a contracts professor, um, also would be interested in torts and other areas that basically define what our rights are. What, what's the right you have? What's the right I have? When have I violated your rights? And then I got, for a, reason, for, for a long story I won't go into, dragged into con law somewhat reluctantly, maybe about 30 years ago. And now it basically occupies all my time. So I, I'm now 100% a con law lawyer. I still have a con, I still have a contracts casebook. I'll teach contracts every once in a while. But my scholarship is all about the Constitution. And around, it didn't start off this way, but around the late 1990s, I became attracted to what's called originalism, and that is interpreting the Constitution according to its original public meaning. By 1999, I had published a piece about this, and. My book in 2004, Restoring the Lost Constitution, was all about originalism, why it was the best approach to interpreting the Constitution, and what did the original meaning of the Constitution say. Well, let's let's jump right into that because I I think uh, I'm, I've I've been sweating bullets because I felt like I was back in class, uh, sort of studying up for this interview, and uh, hopefully there's not a test at the end of this. But uh, I've been talking about the Constitution more from a philosophical understanding 
of of what individualism is and and what what individual sovereignty um, at least should be about and and even the the the, the founding influences um, uh, of Madison and, and Mason and, and all of the guys that developed these ideas you can go back to the Scottish Enlightenment and and perhaps even further but you have a new book out called an Introdu- introduction to Constitution law with with your colleague Josh Blackman and this is but the subtitle is key yeah, to 100 Supreme Court cases everyone should know that could have been the title yeah but for, for marketing purposes amongst in law schools it had to be the other title yeah. but it's a one it's 100 Supreme Court cases everyone should know and talk uh, before we dive into this let's talk a little bit about the uh, two or three books that sort of you've written that lead us up to this because this is case law this is not exactly. philosophy exactly so my first book on the Constitution, Restoring the Lost Constitution, the Presumption of Liberty, was about how you should interpret a written constitution, original meaning, and what is the original meaning of key provisions of the constitution. So what does the constitution say? Uh, Presumably, courts should follow that. The second book, Our Republican Constitution, which came out uh, just a a few years ago in 2016, uh, that was about the role of judges. It wasn't about the original meaning of the constitution. Is what is the role of judges in a constitutional republic? In enforcing the Constitution, and there, that was responding to my experience in the healthcare challenge, which I was the lawyer that originally devised the argument for why the individual insurance mandate was unconstitutional, and I ultimately became a lawyer for the National Federation of Independent Business when it went to the Supreme Court. Um, what I, we learned in that case was getting five votes that your theory of the Constitution is right is not enough if one of those justices, in this case it was the Chief Justice, decided that his judicial role told him that he needed to defer to Congress. Well, he wasn't saying what the law was. He was saying what his role as a judge was. So I wrote our Republican Constitution in response to my experience with the Obamacare case, and that's how the book starts, with my experience, as to why he was wrong about the role of the judges, and he was not alone, why conservatives have actually been wrong about the role of judges for you know a very long time, uh, and why we, we, we need a more active involvement or engaged judiciary to invalidate laws when they really are unconstitutional, stand up to the other branches. So that was my second book. Now, this is a book that's not about those things. This is a book about what has the Supreme Court actually said about the Constitution. Um, what, and that we, that's what we call constitutional law. Constitutional law is not the same thing as the Constitution. Constitutional law is the law that the courts will follow and that the other branches presumably also follow because the courts follow it. Of how you implement the Constitution. And so what's the best way of learning that? That's what I teach. I just, this morning, I finished my last session of Constitutional Law 2, which is about rights. In the fall, I will teach Constitutional Law 1, which is about structure. But what I'm teaching in those classes is not the original meaning of the Constitution. I mention it. I talk about it. I'm teaching what is the law that we now live under that the Supreme Court has given us. So what is the best way of learning that? There's lots of ways to learn it. And they're fine. But what I think the best way to learn it at is as a story. Because I think constitutional lawyers and justices have a story in their head about what has happened from the founding until today and where they fit into that story. And this story has characters, like all good stories do. It has justices or characters and other people. But, but amongst the characters are these cases, each one of which is a story in itself. And if you go back to the beginning and you come back through today, 
You tell the story of constitutional law by telling the story of these cases, each one of which is a riveting story. Um, and then you see that there are the good cases that you're supposed to emulate. These are we call the canonical cases, the canon. And then there's the bad cases that you're supposed to shun and not be like, and we call those the anti-canonical cases, the anti-canon. Um, and, and it's easier to even spot the anti-canon cases like Dred Scott and Plessy versus Ferguson, the good cases like Brown versus Board of Education. So what the justices and lawyers are carrying around in their heads, even if they got it, they picked it up indirectly, is a story about who are the heroes and who are the villains in this, in this saga. Um, and you want your case to conform to the good guys, the heroes, and you want to avoid the bad guys, the villains. You want to paint your other, the other side as they're basically pursuing the bad cases, the villains. And so the best way to tell the story is as a story, and that's what we do in this book. Uh, and we do it, as you're going to, we're going to talk about it, we do it not only by means of the chapters of the book, but each chapter represents a separate video that Josh and I spent two years producing in a, in, a in a TV studio up in Chantilly, Virginia. We spent 80 hours in the studio over a two-year period uh, with the scripts in front of a green screen, uh, recording our narration of all these stories. And then in post-production, Josh, my co-author, is primarily responsible for all the graphics and the illustrations and the pictures and the animations and the excerpts from oral arguments and the excerpts from the hand-down statements that the justices, when they get, deliver their opinion, they deliver it in court. And we have excerpts of the recordings where they are explaining the opinion themselves. All of that is there to tell these stories in as engaging a manner as possible and as accessible as possible for the average law student, college student, high school student, and member of the general public. Yes, this is uh, the, the book itself is, is a very consumable product because I think chapters tend to be three or four pages long a piece and it it gives you a snapshot of the history it gives you the, the the argument that's happening at the time and your your concept for a law professor a law professor at, at George Wash at George Washington uh, Georgetown University um, you actually want to make law and constitutional law accessible to actual people well and I consider my students to be actual people <laughs> and uh, well they're not they're not not people until they become lawyers and right then, right then well they're, they're halfway in between they're yeah. quasi actual people quasi lawyers at this yeah. point but you know it's I was up in front of them this morning and then I had our exam is next week so I had six or eight of them in my office uh, sitting on the floor asking me questions today and you know they're no different than anybody else you know Matt you you could take this course and uh, for one thing it's all new to them it's they may have taken other courses but they haven't taken this course and yeah. so this story is new to them yeah uh and i think it's best understood as a story and once i started teaching this way um, all of a sudden the exam uh, performances started to go way way up and we got everybody along people got it better or worse but even the people at the bottom of the class basically get the story it's funny it's funny that you use storytelling because that's that's the whole reason of of what we do at free the people is that we're trying to explain ideas, and in our case, uh, more about economics than law in the context of a often personal story, maybe a historical story as well. And our theory was is that that's more interesting to people than economics. God help us um, as an economist. Well, my last book, Our Republican Constitution, I turned the manuscript in. It had been accepted, my first trade book, accepted by HarperCollins. I was having a celebratory dinner with my editor in New York and thinking, oh, this is great. I'm done. They gave me a nice advance. Uh, and then he says over dinner, it's not accessible enough. 
And I was like crestfallen. Like, I did the best I could. I wrote the whole book. You already accepted it. Like, what am I going to do now? And I said, what does it need? And he says, it needs more stories. Yeah. So basically, I said, well, I can do that. And I went and found a story of different, they're all different kinds of stories, like, you know, the Revolutionary War story or other sorts of stories, or even my own stories about arguing the medical marijuana case in the Supreme Court. So every chapter starts with a story to illustrate what's going to happen after that. Um, he was satisfied that we'd really hit the mark. But the other thing that was interesting is I actually, in finding these stories, learned stuff yeah. about the, what the subject of the chapter was that I didn't know before I found the story. I had to read a book about the Declaration of Independence because that was going to what I'm going to talk about. And I learned stuff about the Declaration that turned out to be really significant for understanding the proper theory of government that we have in this country. Anyway, um, it, it turns out I think I'm going to always try to write this way from now on. I think stories are the way people learn. Yeah. Well, let's let's go through this, and then I want to get back to uh, distribution and and potential audience for this. But uh, uh, consulting with you, my professor for the day, um, I think we're going to tell a story about the journey of of the original uh, founding concept of of individual sovereignty versus the power of the state, and and how that's been this ping pong ball, depending on who's interpreting what. And, and what the politics of the day are and, and ultimately how um, they, they dealt with the, the, the contradiction of slavery and all of that stuff. But let's start with uh, uh, chapter one, Chisholm versus Georgia. And this is... Well, I can tell what it's about if that's what you want. To, if that's what you're looking for. Well, how do, how do you want to do this? Let's let's talk just briefly about what it's about. But what's what what are they arguing about? Right now, Chesney versus George is the first case. One of the questions we get is, what are the cases in this in this that you talk about that are, were a surprise or that people wouldn't expect? Yeah. Well, Chisholm is one of them because Chisholm is a case that we think is really important, uh, but actually isn't normally taught in constitutional law. It's taught in federal courts for reasons I don't need to go into, but. It's hardly even mentioned in constitutional law. The reason why is because it gets reversed by the 11th Amendment, which is the amendment that comes right after what we call the Bill of Rights. The 11th Amendment reverses Chisholm versus Georgia, so why study it today if it went away? Well, there's a good reason for it, and that is that the Supreme Court in that case considered the most fundamental principles uh, of political political theory uh, in our country, and that is the nature of sovereignty— and the nature of the relationship between the people and the state. And these were extremely long philosophical disquisitions by these justices. There were five justices. And the facts of the case are um, that this, this particular individual um, uh, had sold Revolutionary War supplies to the state of Georgia. He lived in South Carolina, and he sold Revolutionary War supplies to the state of Georgia. The state of Georgia didn't pay for them. So he sues them in federal court for breach of contract. And Georgia says to the Supreme Court, you don't have jurisdiction over me, and so we don't even show up. Georgia doesn't even show up in the Supreme Court. And the reason why it looked like he could sue the state of Georgia was there's a provision in, in, the, in the Constitution which basically says, it really seems to say on its face, that the Supreme Court has jurisdiction to hear suits between states and citizens of another state. Well, he was a citizen of another state. Georgia was a state. Under the plain meaning of the Constitution, it really seems like he ought to be able to sue. Well, what did Georgia say? Georgia said, oh, no, we have sovereign immunity. 
and this may sound a contemporary note. Yeah. We have immunity. You can't, we are immunity as sovereigns. You can't haul us into federal court. We're sovereign. Well, what did the Supreme Court say about that? And this was, it, uh, this, Chisholm's case was argued by um, uh, Attorney, uh, Attorney General Edmund Randolph in a private capacity. What did the Supreme Court say about that? Uh, it, by a vote of four to one, because there were five justices on the court, by a vote of four to one, they said, oh, no, you can sue the state of Georgia. And they only relied secondarily on the text. The text was there. They relied primarily on first principles. And the first principle was this. The people are the sovereign of this country. And the governments are merely the servants of the people. And there's no reason why the servants of the people cannot be hauled into court to answer to their sovereign, their masters. So the people are the masters, and the and the government are their servants, and you and the master can take the servants for vi- for exceeding the authority given to them under whatever constitutional provision uh, we're talking about. Um, and and they not only said that, but remember, the individual was suing was just an individual person, and at least two opinions quite starkly. This is the opinion by uh, uh, James Wilson, who was a principal founder from Philadelphia one of the principal authors of the Constitution, and John Jay, who was the first Chief Justice and also one of the authors of the co-authors of the Federalist Papers, the early authors, these two guys both referred to individual sovereignty. What Wilson says is that in, in the Constitution, the word sovereignty never even appears because the people, they said, might have presumed to call themselves sovereign, but in the preamble, let's say, but they avoided the ostentatious declaration, he said, because that would have been presu- even presumptuous. But if, if, but so they goes through all the meanings of sovereignty, and basically, sovereignty essentially resides in the individual. He says the ultimate sovereign is the individual person, and that's why an individual person can take even a collective body like the state of Georgia, the legislature, state of Georgia, to court. Uh, this was a very fundamental decision, four to one. Now it was very unpopular. And the reason it was unpopular is the states did not want to be subjected to all of these lawsuits. And in particular, they had a complaint. They had a beef. And their beef was, we were promised when we entered into this Constitution and abandoned the Articles of Confederation, the federal government would take responsibility for all our revolutionary war debts. Hmm. Now we're in. And now you're telling us that we, get to be, we have to be sued by private individuals for these revolutionary war debts that you said that you were going to assume, they felt they'd been snookered. Uh, And as a result, they proposed and in two years enacted the 11th Amendment, which basically negates the ruling of Chisholm and says, you cannot, that the the article, Article 3 shall not be construed to allow for a suit by citizen of another state to to a state. The state cannot be sued that way. However, here's the thing it doesn't repudiate the ruling in Chisholm that, about popular sovereignty. It merely negates the outcome of Chisholm. And we don't think it repudiates popular sovereignty, but subsequent Supreme Courts, 100 years later, after the Civil War, the Supreme Court from that day until this day says, no, Chis- the principle of Chisholm was repudiated by the 11th Amendment, and we deny that. We think the outcome was, but not the principle, and the principle is as valid today as it was then. Now, that's how the book starts, with yeah. that story. And how many pages is that chapter? Like, and that's... It's like three pages. Yeah, three, two and a half, really. Right, and then and there'll be pages. a video that illustrates all of this and yeah. has pictures and everything. Yeah, and there's there's a video that corresponds with every chapter. Exactly, and it it, it gives some context, and you you can you can see uh, the illustrations and the quotes and all that all that cool stuff, which again 
tells the story. And and what I what I get out of a lot of these stories is is basically the the inherent politicization of a lot of these decisions. It's a it's a political decision that's going to hold together the new constitution. It has nothing to do with what the constitution itself literally says. Well, it has something to do with it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, the courts never really, let's put it this way, the courts never expressly disclaim their obligation to follow the written constitution. You will not get a justice under during his confirmation hearings or on the bench who says, you know what the constitution says? Fine. We don't have to follow that. We have a better idea. They never say that. Yep. They have all kinds of intricate ways of finding ambiguity or vagueness or we're not sure but they never say they don't have to follow it if you act if they actually agree this is what it says. So I think we have to be clear that as bad as many of these Supreme Court decisions we write about are, they don't go that far. Yeah, yeah. But when you talk about originalism, you're talking about that that core concept. Yeah, of- the original meaning. What meaning? What meaning did it communicate to the general public at the time it was enacted? That's what we're talking about. And the courts will oftentimes avoid that. Yeah. In, in sometimes hilariously tortured ways. Yes, yes. But they never say we have a right to disregard it. I, I didn't know that, that women, for instance, were so delicate because their, their blood was thinner than men. Mm, yeah, well, well, that was, a, that, you know, we're skipping ahead here, but that was actually a very famous brief filed in the Supreme Court by, by progressive hero Louis Brandeis, Louis Brandeis. Well, we'll go back to that because I, yeah, I we'll just come, disrupted our, our yeah, study but, plan. But, right, okay. Um, but but as a that's one that stuck with me because it's so so patently ridiculous, and even at the time it would have been, I think, ridiculous. But it was science, yeah, man. Sun, you, what, you, you, the science is it's, subtle. It's science. Yeah. You can't you can't deny science. Okay, we're going to jump forward. That is, by the an underlying sub theme of the whole story is junk science is used all the time yeah. to reach bad results. Yeah. Yeah, particularly in the progressive area. Right. Um, Prigg versus Pennsylvania, 1842. What's right. that one about? Another case that the, I wouldn't expect people who watch this know anything about. Uh, it's about something really fundamental, the constitutionality of the Fugitive Slave Act passed by Congress in the 1790s to implement what's called the Fugitive Slave Clause of Article 4 of the Constitution, which gives slave owners the right to recapture slaves. They say they will be surrendered up upon demand. That's what the Constitution says. And then in order to implement that, the first Congress or the second Congress passed the, I think it's the first Congress, passed the Fugitive Slave Act, which created certain procedures for for uh, enforcing the Fugitive Slave Clause. Um, uh, so anti-slavery folks, which I've become a big, big fan of and have written a lot about, anti-slavery folks like Sam and Chase, who ended up being the Chief Justice of the United States who followed Roger Tawney, the author of Dred Scott, appointed by Abraham Lincoln. Alex, uh, Chase, when he was a young man um, uh, in Cincinnati, developed an argument um, in defending runaway slaves that the Fugitive Slave Act was unconstitutional because there was no enumerated power in the Constitution to enforce Article Four, the Fugitive Slave Clause. And then he said, if you look at other provisions of Article Four. You'll see, for example, in the full faith and credit provision, which says states must grant full faith and credit, there's a specific power that's given Congress to implement that. And there's other provisions in Article 4 where there is a Congress, congressional power given, but there is no congressional power given 
to enforce the Fugitive Slave Clause. So therefore, he said, what that clause was, and the rest of Article 4 was, was what he called a comity clause or a, 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 a treaty. Essentially, that was a clause that was a treaty that bounded states, but they essentially had to honor that treaty or face uh, repercussions from other states. Like, for example, the extradition powers are in that treaty. And if you if a state doesn't extradite, you have to, one state demands an extradition of an, from another state, the other state refuses, there's nothing that state can do. There's nothing Congress can do about it either. So he said, this is, not, this is something that's not enforceable because there's no enumerated power. Prigg versus Pennsylvania is an opinion by Justice Story, um, Joseph Story, very respected judge, and he upholds the constitutionality of the Fugitive Slave Act. And he does so by doing something that's really very modern. He's, it's sort of like a harbinger of the New Deal court. And he adopts a very capacious reading of what's called the Necessary and Proper Clause. And he says that, which says that Congress shall have power to make all laws which shall be necessary or proper to carry into execution its foregoing powers or any other powers it has under the Constitution. And then he's, that's fine. That's what the clause says. But then he says, if the Constitution creates a right, then Congress has the power to enforce that right. And he says the Fugitive Slave Clause created a right, giving Congress the power to do so. Well, I think that's a huge stretch, huge stretch. He was prepared to do so for whatever reason, um, uh, but I think Chase's argument is actually the stronger of the two arguments. But this is an argument about how, uh, or this is this, what, one of the lessons of this is, today we're told that having broad national power is necessary in order to achieve all good things, and that states' rights are bad, uh, and they lead to evil things. But what was happening in Prigg was northern states were, were passing personal, personal liberty laws, which ensured that free blacks in their, their citizens could not be kidnapped by people who claimed that they were actually slaves and then taken into slavery. And so they had, there had to be a jury trial, there had to be procedures followed. The states put into effect these laws. In Prigg, the court said those laws were unconstitutional. Those state protective of free blacks laws were unconstitutional because the national power under the Necessary and Proper Clause trumps state power. And that's a great example of how national power can lead to really terrible results. It doesn't always lead to good results. Yeah. And it and it does it does portend the entire progressive uh, top-down design of of big government as we know it today. Right. There are two cases that we talk a lot about that do that way before the New Deal, and so the New Dealers can at least claim they weren't the first ones, and they weren't even the worst offenders. Prigg versus Pennsylvania about slavery, and then there's the legal tender cases about whether Congress can make you take paper money instead of gold if your contract called for gold. Uh, and the court held yes, and they had an even more capacious reading of congressional power than the court did in Prigg. But with, those are the two pr harbingers of what later is to come in the New Deal. The New Deal court, as for all its excesses, was actually more constrained in its rhetoric than either the New Deal court, than, than, the, than the legal tender cases were, or even the justice story was. Yeah. Okay, so this is one I think people will recognize, Dred Scott versus Sanford, 1857. Yes. Well, Dred Scott is the preeminent anti-canonical case. It's the case that everybody agrees was terrible. On the other hand, um, today, and we'll talk more about this in the context of slavery, there's a lot of people who think that the Constitution was a pro-slavery document, and it, at least it was until the 13th and 14th Amendment were enacted, and therefore, if they're right, then it's not clear why Dred Scott is really so terrible 
because if they're right, the Supreme Court is just following a bad constitution, but it's not up to the Supreme Court to change the constitution. So Dred Scott is only terrible and awful if, in fact, the court was going beyond the original constitution, which would mean the original constitution maybe was better yeah. than it's given credit for. So either the constitution's right and the court's wrong. Yeah. Or the Constitution's wrong and the court is right, but you can't have it both ways. So this is a case, in, in my view, the court was wrong. And it isn't just my view, it was the view of Frederick Douglass and a bunch of other folks, including Abraham Lincoln. And we'd have a lot in, and we talk about what Douglass argued. Um, and in our view, Dred Scott was wrong on a, you know, a number of different grounds. Um, and that's why we talk about it. It is used as an argument by today by each side of our political divide against the other. Um, so, for example, uh, Justice Taney claims to be basing his opinion on something like originalism, only not original public meaning, but he's talking about the intentions of the framers. And one of the key parts of his argument is that the Southern states would never have agreed to a constitution in which someone like Dred Scott could be considered a citizen of the United States able to sue in federal court. This actually goes back to the earlier discussion of Chisholm. What's at issue in Dred Scott is whether Dred Scott could be considered, if he was a free person, could be considered a citizen, and thereby he could sue in federal court as a, under a diversity of citizenship clause, which says a citizen of one state can sue a citizen of another state. And the issue is, could he be a citizen? And Tawney says, no, he isn't a citizen. He could never be a citizen because the original Southern states would never have agreed to a compact in which somebody like Dred Scott would be a citizen. Why? Because if he was, he could go around the country and exercise these fundamental privileges or immunities, like the right to assemble and to speak freely on all subjects, and in the right to keep and carry arms wherever he went. If he was a citizen of the United States, he'd have those rights when traveling in other states. We know they'd never agree to that, therefore he couldn't be a citizen. So this is used as an argument against originalism by non-originalists. See? Dred Scott is an originalistic opinion. Well, I don't agree with that in part because I think it's original public meaning originalism that, can, that governs and, not in, and it's not the dirty intentions of the founders that matters, it's what they wrote. We could, that's a separate subject. It's also used by the right against the left because in another portion of the opinion, which there's no reason why the 20 actually had to reach this because having found no jurisdiction, he should have just let it go at that. But he still goes beyond that and says that the Missouri Compromise uh, which basically uh, allowed Congress to say that certain territories could be free and other territories would be slave. Uh, the Missouri Compromise was unconstitutional. Why? He said because it violated the Fifth Amendment's protection uh, against the due process of law, which says that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. The Fifth Amendment applies to the federal government. The federal government's running the territories, and the slaveholders are being deprived of their property and slaves, contrary to the due process of law. And this is being this is then used by uh, conservatives against progressives, saying, here's your earliest example of substantive due process. The due process clause is being distorted to protect substantive rights, and therefore substantive due process has a tainted history. So one side uses it to say substantive due process has a tainted history. The other side uses it to say originalism has a tainted history. Why? Because it's in the anti-canon, and you don't want your theory to be associated with an evil, terrible case. It's a bad story. It's a bad story. It's a bad story. It's a villain. Which, of course, this, this debate leads right up to the history of the 13th and 14th Amendments, which is Chapter 27, and there's a, there's a bunch of different cases that you deal with here. Right. So um, here's the thing. 
when we talk about the Constitution today, and we hear a lot of talk about our slavery past um, and the fact that the Constitution ratified or endorsed slavery, which is something that I think is a claim that needs to be qualified a lot, uh, I, I tend to agree with Frederick Douglass and Lysander Spooner. Uh, and by the way, Douglass was convinced of this position by Lysander Spooner. They, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. In, he credited Spooner and William Goodell um, and one other figure who was actually kind of a guy behind the two of those guys. He, con- he, he attributed his conversion from the Garrisonian view that the Constitution was a covenant with death and an agreement with hell because it sanctioned slavery to this view that the Constitution, if not uh, anti-slavery, was it not, it was not pro-slavery either. Uh, and so, and he said, it was because of these three men that I conven- I changed my mind and went from Garrison to Spooner, essentially. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I agree with them about, about the Constitution not being pro-slavery, although it allowed for slavery. Um, essentially, what ultimately happened was, is that uh, folks like Sam and Chase, who took sort of an in-between position, said, and Douglas agreed with Chase too, said, look, the Constitution is not pro-slavery. But Congress does not have the power to abolish slavery in the states uh, in which it currently exists. It has the power to abolish slavery in the District of Columbia, which they deny because of the Fifth Amendment. It has power to deny slavery in the territories, which the Supreme Court in, uh, in Dred Scott said it didn't. They disagreed with Dred Scott about that. Uh, but it doesn't have power to, 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 to end slavery in the states. That, they said, required a constitutional amendment because Congress does not have unlimited powers. And, they, and, and so the 13th Amendment gets passed after the Emancipation Proclamation because it's not clear what the constitutional authority for that is, and they wanted to make sure Congress had the authority. They gave them a new enumerated power. They passed that amendment. And then when that got, amendment got evaded by the South and by, by the, uh, uh, the racists in the South, they had to pass the 14th Amendment to try to amp up their powers to go after the the, uh, the people that were abusing the rights of the freedmen in the South. So the thing, the point I like to make is that when we defend the Constitution today as being legitimate, um, we are not defending the original Constitution. I don't have to defend the original Constitution, and I have you know mixed feelings about the original Constitution because of slavery, mm-hmm. and also because of the you know the the, the secondary subordinate status of women. Uh, but we get to defend the Constitution as amended. Mm-hmm. And the Constitution, as amended, specifically did away um, with that defect in the original Constitution, thereby making it a, a defensible Constitution. I think it's, I keep latching on to that that radical kernel that that it's it's not even started with the Constitution, but it started with a lot of the philosophy that that was embraced by the founders that um, the individual comes first, and it strikes me that that was a a very radical and, and undeniable concept that forced us eventually to to deal with with slavery and all of the other defects and in, in yes. the original document. And and it and there's a lot of stuff coming out now about this in response to the 1612 project or whatever the name of that yeah. project is. Um, uh, there's stuff coming out now which is really really interesting and good, and it's actually based on scholarship that we've known about for 40 50 years. Uh, and that is that uh, the Declaration of Independence was a critical accomplishment, a stepping stone towards the eventual elimination of slavery. That prior to that, slavery was prevalent throughout the entire world. 
Um, uh, England had had a court ruling, the Somerset case, that had abolished slavery in England, but England did nothing about the slaves the slave they held in the, co- in the colonies, in the, particularly in the Caribbean islands. Uh, those are still up and running. Um, and it was the Declaration of Independence that, uh, actually the year before the Declaration of Independence, the first anti-slavery meeting that had been held in, in the world of an anti-slavery society was held in Philadelphia. Uh, it was a number. It was Quakers that were doing it, and then after the Declaration was enacted, um, was the beginning of the end of slavery. Um, and because it was quite obvious to everyone, including the slaveholders in Virginia and elsewhere, uh, that the, uh, who wrote it, that slavery was incompatible with the principles of the Declaration. What to do about it was a secondary question. The first question is, is it compatible? No, it's unjust, it's not compatible. What do we do about it? Well, now we have to talk about that because yep. there's issues. But it was, the, it was the beginning of the fight to end slavery. That fight against slavery didn't start anywhere other than here. It started here. And it's not, and it's not entirely clear that Britain, if we hadn't, invi- if we hadn't uh, uh, entered into this constitution which allowed uh, for free states in the north and to, to uh, get going, it's not entirely clear uh, what Britain would have been would have done um, uh, to its slaves in in the south in, in the Caribbean islands. I feel like in in correspondence that maybe wasn't public at the time, but both Madison and Jefferson were well aware of the of the implications of of their radically individualist philosophy and and how slavery was a contradiction. They, they were completely aware of this. They, yeah. and, and in fact, it was so obvious that uh, into the early 19th century, eventually pro-slavery, when, when, when pro-slavery advocates started actually developing a pro-slavery ideology, which didn't really exist at the time of the founding exactly, um, they had to dismiss the declaration, which they called a farrago of nonsense. Yeah. Because it was yeah. obvious that all men were not created equal to them. And so therefore, they repudiated the Declaration. They didn't say, oh, they didn't do what Taney said is, oh, we must interpret it in light of their intentions. It may. It, what Taney says in Dred Scott is, you know, if we read those words today, we would know it applied to everybody. But back then, it didn't apply to everybody. Well, that's wrong. That's just, that's one reason why he's so wrong. It did apply to everybody back then, too. Yeah. Um, and... Um, Southerners eventually, they didn't do that. They basically repudiated it altogether. They said, it's ridiculous. Let's get rid of it. Yeah. yeah. So let's, uh, we're sort of uh, getting to a, a broader debate now about not just individual rights, but uh, the right to contract and, and the right to um, be economically free as well. We're jumping to Chapter 28, the Privileges or Immunities Clause, and it starts with the Slaughterhouse Cases of 1873. Right. Well, you see, the, the right to for economic liberty grows out of the slavery question because what is the slavery system? It's an economic system. And what is it based on? It's based on the lack of economic liberty of enslaved people. Enslaved people lose their right to hold property. They lose their right to enter into contracts. They lose their right to sue and be sued. They lose their right uh, uh, to um, a lot of personal security. Uh, They lose all their economic liberties. It's an economic, why is that a surprise? It's an economic system. It's yeah. a system by which some people get to expropriate the labor of another system, of another group of people. Uh, and the free labor movement, which is the philosophy that underlied the anti-slavery ideology that grew up in response to the pro-slavery ideology, uh, is that each person owns their own labor. That's what John Locke said in, in Two Treatises of Government. He says, the, our property rights begin with ourselves. Everybody has a property in themselves. 
um, and have a right to exchange that for other, for for money or other things. Uh, so free labor is part of that. And after the 14th Amendment was enacted, one of the questions that arose was, well, who gets to take advantage of this freedom of contract, freedom of labor, uh, right of private property uh, uh, under the 14th Amendment, which is now going to protect these things? And five years after the 14th Amendment is enacted in a, in a case called the Slaughterhouse Cases, which is an interesting case because is it in the canon or not? It's a case that most all law professors of every political stripe disagree with, and yet the Supreme Court continues to uphold it. And in that case, the Slaughterhouse Cases, it was some white butchers in Louisiana that were inter- said that a monopoly slaughterhouse law that was passed as a public health and safety measure uh, interfered with their freedom of contract and their right to pursue a lawful occupation of being a butcher. Because the law said you couldn't butcher now in your own premises. You had to go all the way to the Monopoly Slaughterhouse, pay them a fee, and butcher over there. It's a very long, complicated story. I gave a lecture about it in the Supreme Court a couple of years ago. Um, but we simplify it in this book. By the and, way, it's funny that, 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 that not just this and another case, it's, it's, it's based in Louisiana. Uh, so many cases have come yeah. out of Louisiana. Lot, Plessy versus Ferguson is out of Louisiana. There's, a, there's um, uh, the civil rights cases are out. The, the, the Crookshank case, which had to do with the, Louisi- the, 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 the massacre yeah. of African Americans. Louisiana is the hot, has been a hotbed of constitutional cases and all based on bad behavior. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, anyway, the issue was whether the 14th Amendment protects economic liberties of these white butchers, and the Supreme Court, five years after the 14th Amendment was acted, said, no, it does not. And then the day after they decided that, they decided the Bradwell case, which is also we do a video on. And in the Bradwell case, it was whether Myra Bradwell, a woman, could be denied the right to practice law in Illinois because she was a woman. And so the day after the Supreme Court says, well, there is no right to pursue a lawful occupation protected, that they said the right to pursue a lawful occupation is not a privilege or immunity of citizenship protected by the 14th Amendment. The next day, they said, and if we're right about what we said yesterday, Myra Bradwell can't sue to practice law because there is no right to pursue a lawful occupation. Yeah. So she loses out and women lose out. Uh, from this discrimination because the Supreme Court says we are not going to protect economic liberties of people. We might protect the liberties of freed blacks because that's what the, that's what the amendment was aimed at, but not anybody else. Now, there are dissenters in the Slaughterhouse case, including Sam and Chase, who was the chief justice, but three others wrote opinions. Sam and Chase is very ill at this point and cannot write an opinion. Uh, so he joins. It's a five to four decision. And they say, oh, no, it does pursue a right to lawful occupation. Um, and that case should come out the other way. I think, and my, my co-author Josh and I think, that the dissenters have the strongest argument here. But then what about the Bradwell case? What happens the next day? Well, three of the dissenters go over and join the majority. And they say, oh, we think there's a right, but it's not being violated here because women are different. And therefore, it's okay to treat women differently because they have different spheres. They have different const- constructions. Um, and their places in the home, and under the laws of coverture, they don't have a legal identity, so they can't be lawyers. Blah 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 blah. This blah. is where the quote about, about about being delicate. Yes. Yes. Right. So that's Justice Bradley. They haven't met my wife, by the way. She's well. I've met your wife. Yes. She delicate is not necessarily a word I would use. Should punch you out for saying that. Yeah. She she may still. Yeah. So yeah. Um, uh, so the three dissenters they say because women are different. There is such a right, but th- this law doesn't violate it. There is one dissenter, Sam and Chase, the defender of runaway slaves, the successor to Roger Tawney. He dissents in this case, 
And he's too ill to write an opinion. He dies three weeks after the, uh, the case's decision is announced. But he does have an interesting line in the Supreme Court reports, which I don't think, I think it's unique. I've never seen it again. And that is, it says, the Chief Justice dissents from the decision and all opinions in the case, <laughs> which means he not only dissents from the majority, he dissents from the concurring opinions. What they said about women, he dissents from that too, because he thinks the 14th Amendment, A, there's a right, and B, this violates that right. And women do deserve to be protected from unreasonable discrimination, discrimination that's not founded based on the facts. Hmm. Uh, Lochner versus New York, 1905. Well, this is a case that if you teach constitutional law and you teach it responsibly, you have to tell your students that this is a case that's in the anti-canon. This is a case that people think on both sides of the political spectrum was right was wrongly decided and it's not only wrong it's terrible um, it's very very bad and it's very very bad for two reasons one is because it's substantive due process we heard about that with with Dred Scott it's using the due process clause to say you have a substantive right to liberty and this law in New York which was a law that limited the hours that bake shop employees could work to 60 hours a week that this law, uh, 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 the court held this law violated their liberty of contract to enter the bike, the bakers and the bake shop uh, um, employees should have a right to contract, uh, and that elevated this right under the due process clause, which is substantive due process, and it's bad. It's very, very bad because it was elevating the wrong right uh, and to a, and being protected, and it was protecting it under substantive due process. So. It's considered bad, and that's considered bad by people on the right. Uh, people on the left used to think it was very, very bad. Now they only think it's very bad because they like substantive due process now. So that can't be the problem. The problem isn't that they were using substantive due process. The problem is they were using substantive due process in favor of the wrong right. So it's only very bad. It's not very, very bad. <laughs> uh, and so you have to teach it this way. Now, I have to confess, Matt, I actually think this is one of my favorite opinions ever written by the Supreme Court. I think it's very, very good uh, for lots of reasons. It's one of my favorite opinions. And it's actually reading this case in constitutional law as a law student and then reading the reaction to it by subsequent courts is what caused me to turn off of constitutional law altogether and become a criminal prosecutor and then a contracts professor because I thought it was a great case. And then I turned the page of the case book and I'm, I'm told not only is it wrong, it's so terrible that you should not emulate. It's in the anti-canon. Um, but I think, you, you know, with academic freedom, I'm entitled to say I like this case a lot. And, and, in, and, and in our video, we do explain why we think it's good. But we have to first inform you and, and responsibly as teachers that you're supposed to think it's bad. <laughs> okay, let's, let's wrap it up with this because we, we could go on. And this is, this is really fascinating stuff. Well, the and, videos last 11 hours, so we could go on for 11 hours. Yeah, we, we, could, do, we, we could just do a marathon. Right. Um, um, but we'd have to bring whiskey to the table at that point. But let's let's wrap up with uh, Chapter 32, Economic Liberty in the Progressive Era. And it starts with uh, Mueller versus Oregon in 1908. Um, well, lo this, these are cases that are still in the Lochner mold. So yeah. they're protecting economic liberty. What we really then, I think, basically need to do is to get to the New Deal where they reject this whole idea. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially the next phase of the story. So first, they start protecting these liberties. 
um, but they start invalidating progressive laws. And that's where you start getting this Brandeis brief. This is the Mueller case that you're mentioning. So the, the, the pushback comes. The court is basically saying in Lochner, they're saying, look, this is supposed to be a health law. It's passed under the rubric of being a health law. We don't see a real health law benefit going on here. This is part of a larger statute called the Bake Shop Act, which the court said was perfectly constitutional because it really was a health law. Regulated ceiling height, ventilation, whether animals could be in the premises, whether you could sleep there, where the washroom should be. It was a very elaborate health and safety law, which the court said is perfectly fine. The Lochner court said this. It's only this maximum hours law that got put in there at the behest of the labor unions that they thought was not really a health law and not justified as a health law. So in the next case involving a, the minimum wage law for, or a maximum hours law for women, not for bakers, but for women, Louis Brandeis, the hero of the progressives who ends up going on the Supreme Court, very activist guy, he files what's called a brand, what's a brief, which was now called a Brandeis brief, that isn't, doesn't consist of cases and doctrines and precedents. It consists of snippets of social science and, and supposedly biological science, 80 turgid pages of pseudoscience, including something you mentioned before yeah, we about, went on. Yeah, it's, it was about women and, and how their, their blood was thinner than men. Therefore, they couldn't possibly do the same things. Right. They needed, to, in other words, he said, you know, just like the dissenters in Bradwell, in, in Slaughterhouse, who thought that this law was reasonably applied to women because women were different, he provided scientific evidence that women were different. And therefore, the legislature was right to limit the working hours of women, even if they didn't work, limit the working hours of men. Um, and because of all the different weaknesses and frailties of women, and they were subject to indisposition, and they could do delicate work, but they had a hard time if they were standing up. And plus, they might get pregnant, and the future of the human race depends on having healthy pregnancies, and this was bad for society. So it was all this social science, all this science, um, and the court buys it. The court says, we accept this. We, the Lochner court, the post-Lochner court says, okay, now we've heard evidence. It really, we'll accept it. It really is a health and safety law. So they uphold it. Great. Hurrah. Progressive legislation has been upheld. Ironically, Brandeis is still held up as a big hero, and Brandeis briefs are held up as a big innovation. And yet, it was all about the subordinate. It was all about the inferiority of women. Yeah, and it turns and out this is in a context of uh, the, the Wilsonian era, and 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 scientism and, and yes. even eugenics, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. And we talk about Buck v. Bell. In other case, we give a whole video about Carrie Buck and how she was railroaded. Uh, and be and sterilized under a eugenics law um, that was a progressive champion. Although, truthfully, people on both sides, uh, eugenics was the science of the day, and lots of people, regardless of ideology, believed in eugenics. But progressives were really, really into eugenics in a big way. Yeah. Um, so eventually, so this era comes to an end of protecting economic liberties in part because of things like Brandeis. But Brandeis gets on the court and what's the first thing he does? He eliminates reference, the need to prove that these laws are rational and he switched the burden of proof to the challengers of laws that say, well, we're gonna presume laws are okay unless you can prove they're irrational. Hmm. So you have to file a Brandeis brief, brief to challenge a law, not just one to defend the law like I did. Um, and by switching the presumption of from to uh, from the one favoring the liberty of the individual sovereign going back to the beginning to favoring the legislature over the sovereign individual, 
Uh, now the burden is on the individual to prove that a law is unconstitutional. And eventually, we, as we tell it, by 1955, the Warren Court makes that burden uh, uh, irrebuttable, that presumption irrebuttable. It's a burden you cannot win unless you can establish you have a fundamental right of some kind. So uh, that is the beginning of the end of the protection of economic liberty uh, uh, in this country. And at the moment, it's still relatively unprotected. We don't agree with this, but we teach it. We tell the story the way they are. These stories have heroes, they have villains. We don't like all these cases, but we tell the cases that you need to know to understand what the Supreme Court has been doing with the Constitution for over 200 years. Which is why um, everybody needs to read this book, to understand the, the context and how we lost that, uh, that original notion of, of individual freedom and sovereignty. And, and let's talk about one, this. One story at a time. Yeah, one story at a time. And I've, uh, I have a former career as a grassroots organizer, and we would spend every day, all day, talking about the rule of law and defending the Constitution, um, because I think every citizen needs to understand this story. I agree. And that's why uh, we wrote it for the general public, the videos for the general public. We originally did the videos for, pe- for students who used our casebook, and then we got in the middle of the video project, and we thought, these videos are just too important and too accessible to be limited to law students who are using our casebook. Um, and so we created this book, this separate book, as a vehicle by which everyone could get access to these videos because we thought the American public uh, in general and students of all varieties down to high school level in particular need to know these stories. Then they will understand what the Supreme Court is doing. Yeah, so you, you think that this could be used for homeschooling. It could be used to prepare if you want to pursue a career in the law. But if you also just want to be a good citizen. You want to understand the rules of the game. If you go on Amazon and you read the reviews by people who have read the book and who have watched the videos, you will see what they say about how accessible these videos are. And uh, I think uh, it would make a fantastic homeschool course where the students would read a chapter, a three-page chapter, then watch a a five to 15-minute videos. The videos are all really small and then talk about it. And you go through one chapter a day for 63 days and you will understand more about the Constitution than many lawyers do who don't know these story, don't know all these stories. So I, I was uh, many years ago a wannabe academic, and I remember the pricing of academic books, and they were they were prohibitive, and I assume there was some sort of uh, cartel sort of mentality with that. But you managed to get a market price on this. Tw- yes. What is it? Twenty nine ninety five. Twenty nine ninety five for the paper. I have a case book. If you wanted to buy our casebook, the casebook costs between, depending on which version you get, between $200 and $350. Which is typical yeah. academic pricing. Yeah, partly because the market is so small, they have to make their money back on very, very few sales. Yeah. Um, uh, but this is a book for the mass market, so the paperback is $29.95. That gives you the book and access to all 63 videos, but there's a code inside here. Let me show, because actually some people who are not tech-friendly don't realize that Here's where the code is. I buy a lot of lottery tickets, so I And you scratch off yep. the code carefully so you don't scratch the number off at the same time you're scratching the some of the older folks just scratch the number right off. They must have never bought a lottery ticket. And that's your code. You go online, you get access to all the videos. That's twenty nine ninety five. All Amazon sells it for a little bit less. Um, you can buy an ebook from Amazon or an ebook from the publisher at twenty four ninety five, and that gets you a code for the videos or videos only from the publisher at nineteen ninety five. If you go to conlaw.us, conlaw.us, you will see 30-second previews of all the videos, and it will give you links to buy it in either of the three formats, paperback, 
uh, ebook or videos only. Cool. So we'll we'll post all that stuff on social media so people can check it out because having done about half of the coursework, I I, I think it's it's one of the best things I've ever consumed on constitutional case law. It's good stuff. You well, guys thank did you. a great I job. I appreciate that, Matt. It means a lot. And thanks for doing this. This has been awesome. Well, now I got to go back to my office and finish writing my exam. Yes, you do. Thank you. <laughs> thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.